everybody. Welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. My name is Ryan Egbert, and this episode was on the road once again. It was actually recorded in November when I was on the road in Boston, Chelmsford, Massachusetts. Uh, I may be pronouncing that wrong still. My apologies to all of you in Massachusetts. I, I'm horrible at pronouncing some of the cities in your area, apparently. But I had the pleasure to visit Escolab, and I know there's Esco is a pretty well-known calibration entity that goes to the um, NCSLI conferences. I've seen them around um, as long as I have been going, and I got to go out there and do in-person training with their people as well as some from the local area, and had a fantastic time. And here in this podcast, I got a chance to sit down with Mike Walsh, who is the president of Escolab, as well as Troy Thomas. And Troy and Mike came out of the business and development side of the calibration industry and have over 60 years combined experience between the two of them. And they've been working together for over 25 years at Esco. Uh, Mike himself has a BSBA in history and biomedical science and an MBA. Uh, Troy has a technical high school where he focuses in on electronics and a background bachelor's in degree in business. But most of their metrology experience is hands-on and industry-specific education there at Escolab and participating in education around the industry. Um, I had a fantastic experience meeting with all of them. Uh, I couldn't recommend going out there enough. It was a beautiful time of year. We went through what was called an Indian summer there. And... Uh, yeah, just had a great conversation, got to talk to them a little bit about what struggles labs go through, and then you'll see some of the other things that we worked on with them uh, when the YouTube project finally comes around, which should be soon. Uh, one small side note, when it comes to season three, that's going to be coming up here soon. Uh, this episode most likely will end our season two offerings. And really the seasons don't matter much other than uh, some of our statistics keeping and then also just normal organization of the show. So anyway, without further ado, let's move on to the podcast with Mike Walsh, Troy Thomas from Esco Lab. Thanks for listening. So I'm on the road once again. Last time I was in Denver, now I'm in Cle uh, Clemsford. Kelmsford, Kelmsford. It's it's. I'm bad at the the Massachusetts places, but I'm here at es Esco Lab in Kelmsford, Massachusetts. I'm saying it wrong still, right? Chelmsford. 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 With Mike Walsh, Troy Thomas. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. And and uh, thanks for making the trip out here. Yeah, this was one of our first stops that didn't have a built-in audience for training. So it was, it's was it been great to get to train some of your new technicians. Um, it's an always a evolving process in a lab, I'm sure. And we'll, we'll dive into that later on. But Mike, I was hoping you could open things up with introducing yourself and kind of the background and history of the lab. Hi, my name's uh, Mike Walsh and I've been in the industry quite a long time. Um, my father, purchased ESCO in 1974 and uh, I was 10 years old at the time so it was it was kind of a uh, a surprise to all, our family um, and just being owners of a, a small 
calibration laboratory. Um, it was actually based out of Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time. And it was founded by a small group of um, engineering type guys that uh, purchased some calibration standards and uh, started up the company in 1961, actually. So uh, <clears throat> I started working at ESCO when I was about 16 and a half years old and got my driver's license and uh, started doing pickups and deliveries during, during high school. Um, then went away to college, uh, worked off and on at the business and did a few other things and then came on board full time in, um, in the customer service, uh, purchasing and pickup and delivery area of the business in about 1990. Yeah. So, and yeah. And, uh, I do remember a little bit of a story when I joined ESCO of Mike's dad had a choice of either buying the cow lab or buying a bakery. So, so I think he made the right choice. That's true. Is That's that, true. It, was it a, an established bakery already? Not really. Uh, he had a friend that was into baking and I uh, was trying to convince my dad about opening a bakery in, in the local supermarket. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. was uh, it like a yum yum shop type? Yeah, of thing? yeah. They, they were called yum yum shops at the at the time, and uh, it was funny. Uh, the local he he knew the one of the guys that was a big wig at the grocery store, and the guy said, "Don't do it. You you won't make any money doing a bakery in that store." So, so we, my dad was lucky that that this opportunity came along, and it really fit his engineering background. Um, he had, uh, worked for a number of different engineering companies over the years, and he was actually involved in, uh, seven Apollo, uh, launches. He worked on some of the equipment in the, um, in the, uh, during the missions and he would go down to mission control and, uh, you know, monitor the experiments. And so the calibration was a really good fit for him. And didn't you mention that, uh, Early on, it was heavily dimensional type stuff. Actually, it, it was more electronic. Oh, um, electronic. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and it's funny. I always tell people, some of the young guys, that it was all analog, basically. There was no digital electronics. When, when I actually started, there was very little digital electronics. Um, and now, you know, as you can, you know, anybody in the measurement world today knows that uh, there's a... Uh, the majority of equipment that's being calibrated is is digital, but especially oh, I mean, electronics. It snuck into torque even. You know, you got digital torque wrenches. Who would have thought of that back in the day that vibrate for mm -hmm. you and all mm -hmm. those things? You know? Yep. So, yeah. Pretty so cool. so what brought you into uh, ESCO there, Troy? Um, at, the, at that time in my life, around 1995, I was just finishing up college, and um, I was – basically working and going to school at the same time. And I finished my degree in business management. I already had a degree in electronic engineering. So I kind of parlayed the two together and took a crack at the, um, the sales world. And I was always interested in sales because I was dabbling in it a little bit at my previous company. And um, I, I, Back then, we didn't have like Indeed and, and all those web portals for jobs. 
we had to like flip to the last three pages of the local newspaper and look at the classified ads. Circle so, the ones you like. You circle the ones you like. And uh, <laughs> that's also how we found leads too in, in the early days for oh, sales. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, because information wasn't readily available back then. So, um, so I found this ad in our local newspaper and applied for it and came in for an interview. And that's where I met Mike and uh, a few of the other people that retired in the last couple of years, like Dave Donnelly and Joe Morris. And um, yeah, started a couple of weeks after that and have been here since. But yeah, did sales for mo about, I don't know, 22 years. And then the last three or four years I've been, I call it the role of wearing many hats. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. That happens at a lot of Cal Labs where, you know, as you stick around, you, you kind of gain different avenues of, mm -hmm. of helping out and, yeah, and so changing your roles a little bit. A little bit of everything now. So, but it's fine. It's just, you know, you, you take the person that has a lot of experience and try to utilize them best for the company. So, and I'm probably the next oldest person here. So, <laughs> So, and, and you used to, uh, Mike, you used to go to the NCSLI shows and then Troy, now you're more the, that's m more your, um, you go to most of those. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I've been going to the shows now for about, I'm going to guess 18 years. Wow. Yeah. There was, there was a thing on the last NCSL form. It, it asked you how many shows have you been to so they can kind of see if you're a rookie or not. Yeah. And I did like like me, I'm a rookie. Yeah, I did dig into the archives and, and count like what year was this? And I think we've been to every city two or three times at this point. Wow. So the one I'm really looking forward to is next year where it's going to be. I'm sorry, two years from now, it's going to be in Denver, Denver, back in Denver. Yep. So uh, I've yet to do a show there. Awesome. So that, that should be fun. And I will be doing a live show at that one, I believe. Yep. This, this year is a rough one for us because I have someone graduating. I have my son graduating, and it's right there in July, July 6th or something like that. So that'll be uh, rough. It's going to be tight. Where, where does your son go to school? They're in, in Harriman in Utah. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. So that will be interesting. Yeah, because then you have to go to Orlando, I think. For, uh, right. That's why I'm not thinking it's going to work out for us this year. Yeah. That's, a, that's a, just a rough timing for me. I don't yeah, know. that's... <laughs> Summer's busy. Yeah. Yeah. So, what have you what what have you guys seen over over the years? Because you know we're spanning a lot of time here. I mean, starting in the '60s here at the lab. Um, what now that I'm here out in the in the industry, you know, our hot topic is always training and the technician shortage. I know it's felt everywhere. So, have you guys seen like a heyday of of where it was easy to find technicians and and now it's really tough, or has this been around forever, and now it's just getting harder and harder? You know, uh, I think it's always been hard to get good technical staff at um, just about any calibration lab. And uh, it's it's a small industry. Um, not a lot of people know about it, and, and uh, it's a great industry, but a lot of people aren't exposed to it. And there's a lot of sort of preconceived notions about who should be working in laboratories or, or calibration labs. And um, I do think uh, over the last 
say 10 years or more importantly, say the last five years, uh, I think calibration labs have, have been more resourceful with the local populations and um, trying to <clears throat> identify people that might be a good fit and in a technical position and also all the other comp, uh, positions at, at a ca calibration lab. Uh, uh, a lot of people don't realize that, say at a company like ESCO with 100 employees, we might have close to 50% of our uh, workforce might not be, you know, a traditionally technical person. Um, but they're dealing with customer service issues, they're purchasing, uh, they're doing logistics, um, accounting, uh, sales, and uh, they're all working within the industry. Um, they all need training. Um, and, uh, and I think that that might be one area that we as an industry could address that we should provide more training to maybe our non-technical staff to get them more versed on what calibration is, some of the language, um, some of the uh, technical parts of the business so that they can better uh, work in our industry as well. And you, I mean, you, you mentioned that um, you do have some programs for younger generation too. Didn't mm -hmm. you say from the high school? Is that right? Or um, yeah, we, we recruit from some of the local high schools here. Um, but it's, it's always a challenge because again, it's a small industry. It's, it's not that well recognized at, at the high school level with the administrators, with the administrators. Um, not all of the schools have good placement type people. Um, and, and also say, at the community college or college level as well. So you really have to reach out and put a lot of effort into those relationships uh, to nurture those uh, people. And we've always found it best to deal with the actual uh, instructors because they, they get to know the students a little better. Um, they know the skill sets, the interests, and you know they, they can come out to your uh, laboratory, take a look at what you're doing. And the type of work you're you're doing, and and identify students that might be a good fit for the for that type of work. So that's always been um, our best uh, opportunities with with the local schools. What what are you noticing with that younger generation? Do they generally like what they see? Um, I and mean, even if ones that uh, maybe do fall fall to the wayside, like is there? Can you identify reasons why? Or is it just sometimes it doesn't fit for everybody? I think a lot of the younger um, employees that are former students really like working here because, you know, I look at their resumes. I interview almost every person that comes in the door. And a lot of them are coming from like these supermarkets and retail world environments. And then they come here and it's like, wow, this is this is pretty cool. This is, I'm playing with equipment. I'm learning new things. And this is an industry I never realized existed before. So they love it. And most of them work out really well. They have to be somewhat technical, I think, to be a match. But, sure. but um, yeah, if you're not technical, I don't think um, it would make a whole lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be technical 
in electronics or dimensional work. You just have to be technical, kind of built that way and understand how things work and things make sense. Joseph and I call it tinkerers, you know, people yeah. that like to get into stuff, you know. Exactly. But yeah, you don't necessarily have to be a, an engineer to, to no. get into it because there's nope. many different areas of it. Yeah, so we, we've been pretty successful. Uh, we've had several high school students that really knocked it out of the park. It took them a while to get going, but after they got going, they, they figured it out. And um, several like uh, two-year college level students have done really well here as well. Now with the high school students, did you, is some of that slowness, and it's not to trash the school system or anything, but is it some of that where maybe they, they aren't taught the calibration type principles, so maybe it's a something new that they're getting exposed to? It's totally new for them, Yeah, totally new. Um, and a lot of them too, this is a different world. Like they're used to working in retail. It's yeah. it's completely different. Now they're sitting at a bench and basically they're unsupervised. In they, um, they have a team leader and a manager, but most of their day they're responsible for getting their own work, doing their own work, and processing their own work. So it's different than the uh, the retail world where you're, you're – you know, front end supervisors right behind you 24, 24 seven. Yeah. Right. So, and you're, and you're dealing with a much different crowd in retail as well, customer wise. That's for sure. Now, um, <clears throat> the other, one thing I'm, I'll mention, cause I'm sure there's not a lot of people listening to this that have actually been here to your location. The thing that took me right away was how many on site you have. Now, is that basically unique to the area where people, maybe it's not as easy to drop it off to hear is I mean you know we we really uh, pioneered the on-site um, when we started doing it there wasn't really a lot of uh, companies doing on-site work um, back in say like the late 70s and, and 80s um, you know most calibration was was strictly a lab business um, or an in-house business where you'd have large uh, companies like Raytheon with in-house labs, things like that. But uh, you know, I'll give I'll credit my father with that that he saw the the benefit and the value of on-site work, and he decided to really focus the company on on-sites. And today we do about fifty percent of our calibrations on-site, and you know. There's no way you're bringing an oven to a uh, a calibration lab, a large oven or process equipment, um, and and there's just a lot of value to having it. Uh, our technicians show up at your laboratory or your manufacturing environment, get the work done, and 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 then moving on. So that's why it's so popular. I think it's just a lot of value for the customer. Um, there's less chance of the equipment getting damaged from shipping, which, you know, unfortunately we're dealing with UPS and FedEx and they're not always the easiest, uh, on the equipment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I've seen the videos of them throwing, you know, throwing <laughs> yeah. things, you know, and, and also we, we do have uh, a pickup and delivery service. Um, so that's a really good, um, service where, the uh, the you know most calibration labs in the commercial world will pick up and deliver equipment, and that's a good thing because it it avoids some of that 
you know, UPS problem, let's call it. Um, and, and a lot of people really don't know how to pack um, test and measurement equipment. It might not be what that company specializes in. And when they're trying to do it, uh, they just they don't understand the, the delicacy of some of the instrumentation. So. You know, that's one of those uh, side requests that I have gotten from other other labs is can you do some customer series where you teach them maybe certificates, packing things, you know, all of those that we do take for granted. You know, we're, we're all in the business, so we know, you know, th these things have to be. I've seen bad places, uh, or I, I hate using that word bad, but you, you know, the unscrupulous uh, laboratories where they'll put, you know, their weights on their on-site van floors to slide around and stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. But it, it, I was really impressed with the the team that you have here for your on-sites. Uh, I think many listeners know that I spend a long time doing on-sites and also be a manager of on-sites. So I, I understand the struggles and seeing yeah. that size of a team, you know, th th they have what, around 20? Yeah. yeah. 20 on-site? That's incredible. Yeah, we have about 20 on-site technicians and we probably have uh, inside staff that supports them of about maybe five people, I'd say, full-time. So they're going to do all the scheduling. Uh, they make sure that, you know, everybody has the right standards for the jobs. Um, they're going to do a lot of the prep work that needs to be done, you know, in between jobs. And well, you mentioned, I mean, one I want to point out mm -hmm. is that you mentioned someone that actually looks at what the technician's doing for the day and helps them, you know, coordinate that equipment or the considerations for that appointment. Yeah. So many places I see is like they give them a couple weeks training and it's like, okay, you're on your own. You know, let us know if there's something really bad yeah. that happens, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I like that, that there's a continual, um, at least someone keeping an eye on what people are doing, you know, at least capability-wise. Yeah, it, it's been really good with, uh, we've always really pushed the communication technology for on-site. And we've, you know, through the years, we've just, you know, we've had the Nextel phones, we've had, you know, uh, the Nokias and the, uh, like you know, well, every Barry, version, yeah, there, every yeah. communication device that existed. I think we went through. Yeah, it. <laughs> and and those guys communicate quite a bit on site between yeah. the different technicians, the the lab managers, the the scheduling people, and and that's really a great tool for them, so that you know everyone's running into different issues on site, oh, yeah. and having those, you know, iPhones now um, to to be able to you know use the the different, you know, communication devices is, is, is really uh, critical out there. Yeah, I had a, a few of your on-site technicians on, in the training, and they're always, you know, near to my heart, you know, because I feel for them. And one of the things I always bring up is, uh, you know, do you guys have, your, do the customers add things while you're there? And they're like, you mean equipment that's not planned? And I was like, yeah. They're like, yes, all the time. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't change anywhere you go, being on-site. You're there. They're like, hey, can you also do this and this? Mm -hmm. yeah. That's regular business. Yeah, it's yeah. just a part of it. So back in the day, it was it was difficult to accommodate the customer when they would add things. But now it's a, easy as a quick Teams message to the oh, right. on-site manager and say, hey, can you send over a couple templates for these devices? I already have the right standards available. Yeah. And you just add them on. Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. before you'd have to like find a fax machine and send over the templates and hopefully you get it. Uh, right. You know, you never knew where the fax was going to show up. Some big company. <laughs> yeah. 
or yeah, what yeah, what room that fact? What room it was in? Yeah, yeah, it was it was complex, but yeah, it's a it's a pretty well oiled machine right now, and um, we like to prepare the team by having the support staff available that reviews their jobs, prepares the standards. They even book the hotels for them. Oh, nice. So the technicians really don't have to do anything except show up, get their work orders, get their equipment, and go to the job, focus on the job. Right. And um, we have a new employee that's been here for about four months, and he came from an OEM, field service type mm -hmm. of environment. And he laughed when he got here because he couldn't believe what we do for these technicians. He's like, I would have to do everything myself from booking my own hotel room to scavenging the standards around the company, calling the customer, setting up the time. So he would have to do all the administrative work where uh, we do that on our end. Yeah, I mean, it's not to just shoehorn training into this, but that falls in the same category, I feel, as you know, finding that time or finding the, the right people to help at the right moments. It's the same thing with the training and stuff. You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, people can't find the time to do it, but you have seen the the benefit from supporting your on-site staff. You know, and, and your retention is incredible for those on-site. On Trust me, I see across the country on-site technicians dropping from companies constantly because of exactly what you're talking about, where right. they're not supported, they don't have anyone there to back them up. And you know, when you're alone and you're faced with a customer that's upset. You know, you don't want to be out there, you know, right. trying to answer things you're not prepared for, you know. Yeah, it's tough. So it's good. It works out well because we let the people do what they're good at. And the schedulers are really good at scheduling. And they're well-trained to do that type of work where if you take a technician and ask them to start booking their own jobs, that that could get messy, yeah. you know. It, being with 20 people, um a, a list of standards that aren't always available for everyone every day. You only have so many of these primary standards. Right. So, yeah, uh, yeah. that's that, a, that's always a limitation, right? Having yeah. the, the And that's another thing, having the stuff for 20 technicians. Do, do each person, does each technician have a, a basic kit, we'll call it, you know, quote unquote? They do. Okay. They do. They, they actually, they're pretty well geared up to do a lot of basic work. Um, I think they almost all each have their own calibrator at this point. But when you get into the RF high frequency work, you can only have so many 50 gig generators to pass around. I'm telling you, it yeah. just gets astronomical in price. Like we, we look at that stuff for training and, you know, sometimes it's easier to partner with a, with a partnered lab than having to stock all that stuff for, you know, random training because of that cost. Mm -hmm. For sure. And it's, it's not it, I, that, that that's a good transition because uh, so what are some of the uh, in the area here some of the uh, industries you support because RF and microwave isn't one of the big ones here right like like Southern California it's everywhere but. yeah like like any part of the country um, every region has their hotspots and um, it's funny our hotspot is really like the life science biotech world. Um, however, we're not a huge player in that market, um, but we're so big that we're actually probably the largest player in the market without trying to be. Right. It's, yeah, it's kind of weird, but that's just how it works. So we do have our fair share of life science customers, but med device is big for us. Uh, defense is big. 
Um, even like research and development, there's quite a few research and development companies around here that yeah, that, yeah. it took a long time for them to get on board, but they're, they're calibrating now too, even though they always believe they didn't need to. Well, you guys yeah. definitely carry a reputation in this area. So I'm sure, you know, as new enterprises pop up everywhere for this, it's life sciences is just huge. I mean, the money invol involved in it is astronomical. And so, you know, they start looking for calibration providers and obviously you guys have that, that rep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, um, New England has a lot of, you know, the greater Boston area and, and the rest of New England has a lot of startup business. And so we've always, you know, over the years, we've always been available for startup companies when they're just launching new, uh, products or manufacturing, uh, facilities. Um, and, and they've grown and then, you know, they'll grow over, over time, which has been, you know, helpful to our business. And, um, <clears throat> but it's a very dynamic area in terms of technology. It's very diverse. Um, New England's very diverse, um, has a lot of foreign, uh, companies that, um, come into our area for, you know, because we're, we're close to so many universities here in Cambridge, um, in, in other, uh, parts of New England. Um, and, uh, so we've always, that, I think that's been one of our, the keys to our success is just being in New England, um, understanding the, the terrain, so to speak. Yeah. And, Literally. And, I mean, <laughs> yeah. they call it the granite state, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and being very focused on what we do instead of trying to expand geographically where, uh, we, we've, we've chosen to kind of stay concentrated. Um, but we are doing quite a bit of work throughout the country with, with other calibration laboratories, um, and other, you know, manufacturing companies as well. And, um, that business has really taken off for us. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, when you look out over such a broadly diverse, uh, country, um, you know, it's, it's hard to find good, uh, partner labs and we've just, uh, we've done well, um, being one of those partners to a lot of, uh, different calibration labs around the country and, and within New England. Well, I, I we talked about this yesterday, Mike, that I, I can't, I, of course I'm so appreciative and I can't think enough for you guys being so open, you know, and hosting training at your location, because it is something that surprisingly enough, or maybe not surprisingly enough, our industry is very closed off, wouldn't you say? Like you were just saying, that it's hard to find partners out there that just because they don't carry the ESCO, uh, the the logo, you, it doesn't mean you can't be um, associated in some way. Like like we were talking interlab comparisons for just a, a very rudimentary example, like that can be big, but um, sometimes that training and, and uh, you know, tech exchange, like you're saying, like there's really no osmosis from one to another when we lose someone it seems like we're losing them from the industry is that what you're seeing yeah i mean you 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 know we're, we want to see the industry grow um <clears throat> we want to see other calibration labs do well throughout the country and even within new england i mean there's just a shortage of of, of good calibration out there and uh just because i do think it, it is hard working together sometimes we we do, I think everybody is very competitive. We have a competitive industry, but almost to a fault. And I think, 
I think we got to figure out as an industry how we're going to work together because there's only so many resources to go around. I mean, um, and we just can't keep raising our prices to the sky on every calibration just because it's so hard <laughs> to do, which it is. Um, you know, we have to make it affordable, yeah. you know, so that so we can get good calibrations out there into the um, into our manufacturing environments, into our research and development environments, um, because it's important. So, you know, that's why we're, we're partnering with sign. Uh, we're hoping to bring more, you know, training to the East coast. Um, and, and, you know, we're hoping other labs will, will send technicians in and, you know, we can support, support those companies as well. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's admirable. And I, I definitely think it's the direction we need to go, like you're saying, because I, I, I understand the need that needed to be competitive. And even that secrecy that used to be there, you know, because we had that that secret science, that secret sauce. Secret sauce. You know, we, we did. I mean, because yeah. the military was the mm -hmm. place that trained mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. But then we almost were secret enough to where we almost shot ourselves in the foot, wouldn't you say? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's weird how closed off i think calibration labs can be from each other and i think it's it's been you know one of the good parts and, and i know the ncs hopefully the ncsl guys are listening and <laughs> but you know one of the best things about going to an ncsl show is is being able to meet all your peers and learning about you know what they're doing and some get gather new ideas about what you know what things you can share together so that we can all improve and um, bring out some best practices and and you know and, and voice our concerns about you know things that aren't working um, with some of the manufacturers of some of the equipment and, and the service and um, I mean you know if if you're sending out a piece of of uh, um, equipment and you can't get it back for like say four months I mean it's it's kind of like hinders your operation yeah <laughs> so um, but you know, what's the answer to that? You know, I guess that's what we need to, to look at as an industry to say, you know, is a four month lead time on a piece of test equipment appropriate mm -hmm. for the industry? Right. Um, and probably not. In a, in a lot of cases, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After your initial investment in your calibration that you pay thousands of dollars for, there's not much time left by the time you get it back. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you only get to use it for three quarters of a year yeah. um, in a lot of cases. But it's a balancing act when it comes to that. You have to have duplication. You have to plan. So I think we've been really good at that in the last couple of years. Uh, yeah. Knowing what, we, what we've been seeing out there. And it's, it is, it's industry-wide. There's, there's no OEM out there that's given turnaround in two weeks or anything like that. It's just, it's just not realistic anymore. So as a third party vendor, Calab, you have to plan accordingly right. and budget for multiple pieces of, of that gear. And, and hopefully you made some good decisions. Um, otherwise you could be in trouble. Yeah. I, it's funny you bring up the, you know, you don't want to keep raising calibration costs because I was on a, I did a podcast with Danae Powell. You, it hasn't been published yet, so you don't have the benefit of listening to it before this conversation. But we did talk about that, that there has to become, you know, there's going to, 
we can't keep raising it, but then, you know, the, the industry is kind of pushing for uh, technicians to be higher, you know, better qualified doing more. And there has to be a breaking point where some, some of that will fall on the customer. But at the same time, uh, you know, like she was mentioning, convincing people of that value prospect to calibration when they're forced to, to do it, that's usually the hardest ones, right? Is like they have to have calibration because it's FDA required or they have to do this. So they sometimes you have to convince them that it's worth it, you know, although we all know it is because we're in, in mm-hmm. you know. So what are your thoughts on that? Like, is there really, those services feel like they can't just keep raising in, in cost, although some places it's, it just is the way it goes, you know? I mean, what do you think? I mean, you know, I mean, we, when you look at ESCO, you can see what I think might look like a modern calibration lab where instead of a a small, say 10 or 15 or maybe 20 person calibration lab, you have a hundred person calibration lab, 200 person calibration labs. Um, and, and the reason why you'd have to do that is because you have to put a certain amount of volume through a calibration lab in order to, to, to make it you know, feasible economically. Um, like you, you mentioned calibrating 50 gig, uh, you know, Agilent, um, generators or something like that. Um, you know, the, the cost of doing that, you could be looking at a half a million dollars worth of equipment. And so if you're not putting enough volume through that equipment, then you're just going to lose a lot of money. Right. Right. Um, and the and, recal cost. I mean, yeah, the and then you're gonna have to you get it. You get an annual recall cost. You've got to get a pretty strong technical person to run the equipment, and then you have to have all the backing of the laboratory as well, like we talked about with our onsite team. So, uh, you know, I do think that some of the small labs will struggle with, mm-hmm. you know, getting into some of these uh, more sophisticated calibrations, um, and. But in order to grow to 100 people, you have to have strong management. You have to have good teamwork. You have to have organization and communication and marketing and, and all these other skills that come into to calibration. So I, I do think that's going to be the future of calibration, though, um, is that like mega labs. I, I do think I think you're going to, you know, you know, we'll, we'll start to see maybe companies taking a look at how many labs they want geographically and maybe say, Hey, maybe that's not the way to go. But, you know, I think that's been a trend that's you've seen over the past say 20 years where it, in order to grow and, and I know it's a lot of it is geographically driven, but, um, they've, they've kind of almost like opened up too many different laboratories in too many areas and there's just too much overhead to and not enough throughput to make it and so there's just not enough you know profit in that model i don't think yeah i think actually what you're saying makes a lot of sense from what i've seen because yeah the individual ones they almost have to they almost have to resort to those well you know i'm doing the air quotes the nefarious things you know the lick and stick, the uh, the sticker stamp and stuff. I mean, maybe that's why, yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. Because yeah. anyone that's been in uh, high enough in the management of a cow lab, especially those smaller ones, and you see the finances, 
there is a tipping point until you grow. You're 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 right, and that's just it's so razor thin. And then anything happens in that year. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 you know calibration is a tough business. We've we've always said that it's yeah it is. Yeah, it's funny. We've been doing this a long time mm-hmm. and doing these shows for many years, and people know who we are at this point. And I constantly get the same question every year: Why don't you guys open up another division? I don't get it. Like we all, everybody thinks that we should be opening up divisions here and there and everywhere. And I always give them the same response that to us, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Come visit here and it makes more sense. Yeah. It's just like, there's so much business in this area. Why would we pack up and go to some other place and start over in the investment is ridiculous. Just property alone and now we know what it costs to buy the right equipment. I, I don't know how it really could be done, really. The investment would be huge. Well, and you ha- you guys have enough picking up stuff, and you're, you're, you grew in the right way. And this, it, it makes total sense when you come to, especially Massachusetts, but I'm guessing the New England area is very similar everywhere. You can just get, uh, you know, everything's very intertwined and twisted. So having a central location makes a little bit more sense to me now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've gotten lost about a handful of times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when we, you know, we'll, we'll like a lot of times I'll be flying in the United States and you look down and you just, you just see how vast it is. Um, and there's a lot of not, not very well populated areas that you're flying over. And, you know, there, there, there could be a lot, you know, a fair amount of manufacturing down there. And, you know, how do you get, good calibration service to these kind of remote locations really um, where they might not have that critical mass of some of the bigger, bigger cities like, like Houston and LA and Seattle, places like that where, you know, there's just that many more um, opportunities to do work. So yeah, I think it's, it's a challenge for some of the areas that are less densely populated um, to have a, a, a pretty strong calibration presence. You know, you're a per, you're a perfect uh, duo to ask because I've always been curious about because um, I, I I know a lot of labs that they'll focus so heavily on hand tools and and you know what I call cherry picking certain things. Is there a place for in in the growth of all this that we're talking about where the the customer should do some of those process instruments? And then you still, you know, get your end of it because it's a higher end calibration in the long run, you know, doing a gauge block or, you know, something higher so that they can do those things. Uh, what do you think about that type of stuff? Is is trying to get just a ton of $15 cows, $25 cows in, in the pursuit of growth, isn't that kind of counterintuitive? I, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend that for any cow lab. <laughs> well, like, but kind of being afraid to like let yeah. other people mm-hmm. do certain cows. It's like don't be afraid yeah. of it, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's easy to um, to get that work, I think. But if you get too much of that work, you you can't get out of the bubble. Right. So it's mm. uh, you got to be careful. Kind of get reliant on it. You mean? Yeah. It's mm. it's. I mean, honestly, we we prefer not to do the work. However, it just comes in as part of the package. And we've accepted that. It's sure. Uh, 
it's where we, our claim to fame is one-stop shopping. And sure. To, to validate that, we have to do the hand tools. And, you know, it's fine. We, we do a ton of them, and it's not what we look for. But sure. we need to satisfy the customer with the one-stop shopping. So we'll do them, and, and we find a price that works for us and works for them. So that's kind of what I figured, but mm -hmm. obviously, you know, I've never uh, got to like try it out on anything, you know, where customers, it, yeah, I guess it, it sometimes is hard for them to fill those same needs. You know, if they're needing to do hand tools, who do you have do that? You know, yeah, it's funny back in the day, right before I started, I used to hear the, the stories of ESCO in the earlier days and I guess we started doing some mechanical dimensional work probably in the late 80s. And at that point in time, ESCO wasn't really quite sure how to price the hand tools because it was new for us. And there was an investment involved because we had to build this dimensional lab and it was expensive and buying all the blocks and things that you need to do the work. So um, the story goes that Esco's predecessors came up with a price to calibrate micrometers and calipers. And it was like, now mind you, this is in the late 80s. They were charging like $75 to do calipers and hand tools because they didn't know where to start. So back in the day, that was the price to calibrate the tools. And they kept coming in. Now, we did the opposite. Our price went down over the years for those tools. Sure. Because we had to do a market adjustment. How much were the tools back then? Were they still, you know, like for a quality one, like $160, $70? Probably, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They, they've always been fairly expensive. Do you remember those days, Mike? Yeah. $75 to the, calibrate the, a micro. The funny part about the, the mechanical equipment, and I remember, you know, the stuff would just start showing up. Um, and nobody really knew what to do with it because we really didn't have that background we were more electronics at the time you know like scopes and and that type of thing and so uh it was it was a learning process and and uh i think you know the other thing that you know to help the industry is how do we get more training into the smaller laboratories mm -hmm. that maybe don't have the technical gurus necessarily um to to fall back on right um, so in, but make it affordable so that they can, you know, learn about, um, what they need to do to, to do some of these calibrations, what kind of equipment they're going to need, what type of data sheets they might need and, and, yeah. and that kind of thing. So I think, I know there's companies working on that, but like yourself, right. Right. You know, <laughs> and, and other companies like with the, the IT in the IT space. Sure. Um, so, but, but yeah, mechanical, um, it's definitely a, a, a totally, you know, the, the, within a calibration lab, you, 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 you will have between your onsite team, then you've got, um, you might have torque, you've got pressure, you've got temperature, force, um, mass, um, and then you have all the dimensional equipment, electronics. So there's just an endless amount to learn. And uh, and that's what we found when 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 we can get a, a young person into the lab or or maybe someone that that's in their second career or third career, they're just you know there's so much to learn in a calibration environment, 
And then also getting into management, getting into operations. As you grow, there's a lot more opportunities. And that's another reason why you want to kind of try to um, make a career path. Yeah, you know, we're, we're trying to develop more career paths in our organization. Um, and um, we do have quite a large engineering team that supports the laboratory. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I, I just to comment on that, I, I, I like the, the direction you're going with the training stuff as well, because it, in career path, as, it, as we all know, we're doing a certification and a school, but that's a framework. You know, there has to be more meat on that for each individual lab, but every lab is different. So it's hard for us to create one that's one size fits all, right? But how you're um, looking to build upon that and, and, and things. And I think that's what is necessary is that, you know, if we can, if us as an industry, we can have, you know, your regional time where you can let people go to do training. Because we talked about that as well, Mike, where it's hard to la- let people out, right? Out of the lab. It's, things are so busy in Cal. How can we let them go for a week to NCSLI or something mm-hmm. like that? So, you know, figuring out ways to get that training, but then, you know, in, in lab, having that career path and progression, yeah, it's, it's hard. And I commend you guys for having that thought, you know, because some labs are just holding on by the seat of their pants and aren't thinking of how do we keep progressing these guys, you know? I, you know, when we, when we first started going into the NCSLs and we started getting more training, it, it was it was an eye opener because we we learned that geez maybe we shouldn't be doing these things or or doing the doing them this way or you know we need a new piece of equipment or so I guess that's the negative thing once you start learning what you don't know then it gets more expensive yeah <laughs> you know yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. but you know that's how you learn and you know we we always fought to you know overcome the challenges. Um, and I, I do think that that's an essential skill for, for laboratories is to have that perseverance to um, get over the challenges of, of growth. And, you know, the last couple of years we, we've had COVID. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of the Cal labs out there have struggled with, you know, figuring out all the different regulations and the social distancing and sanitation and what to do if someone turns positive and and in in the meantime try to run a company and that's essential and, and and stayed open during the whole pandemic and right so you know i there's been a lot of i think there's a lot of stress in the system right now and uh i think you know making sure that your workforce is um, getting adequate vacations and and time off and um, not, you know, pushing the the heat up too hard yeah. on everybody. Yeah, we're, we're big fans of, uh, we call it life-work balance. Yeah. And uh, very few people work overtime. It's, it's a total volunteer thing. And uh, the people that want it, it's there for them. And the people that don't want to work overtime, that's that's it. The forty hours a week, and you get to go home and do your hobbies. And but you're not surviving off of it. Yeah, I know there's a ton of labs right now surviving off the overtime. Mm -hmm. Yep, sure. I mean, you know, we we have our peak times, and we we do our best to to turn around the equipment. And uh, 
but we just we just don't want to work at, burn out our workforce and yeah. right. um, it's just not worth it and you know hopefully our customers understand that but um, you know luckily we're not doing open heart surgery because <laughs> yeah. then we'd be in trouble right <laughs> but um, you know we do a pretty good job on our turnaround um, and and you know we do focus on it but you know we have to take care of our, our workforce and make sure that it's healthy for them to, to, you know, how many hours they're going to work, how much travel they have to do. Um, cause in the long run, you de you definitely want to try to create a good work environment for your workers. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we want people long-term because the investment in people is, is big. Yeah. You and know, turnover is turnover hard. It's really hard. And when you put training into people, um, you, you hope to get the benefits of that training down the road. So do you guys have any issues with um, unnecessary loss, like the the biomedicals coming in with crazy, cr crazy amounts? We, we've hear about that in some some areas. It's it's not uh, I don't think it's a reflection on the lab. It's more of a reflection on the area and the skills not being around, you know. And so some biomedical places like we hear of 150 being thrown 150,000 being thrown at people that definitely don't rate that that experience wise, you know. You mean you mean in regards to like um poaching like poaching, poaching oh your sure, people. yeah. Um we've definitely had a few moments mm -hmm. where some of our technicians have been approached by big pharma companies to take on these positions that I call them risky positions because they really weren't built for that job. Right. And, but yet they were getting the offer to take the job. And um, so we had to deal with that a couple times over the, over the past couple of years. Um, and it's not just technicians, it's, it's administrative people too. Sure. So yeah. Um, On-site guys, yeah, they get that pressure probably more than yeah. others because they're mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah. E even some of our admin people, um, even though they're admin, they're still 20 years of, metrology experience in regards to how to manage a program mm. and those people are valuable as well right uh, for coordination purposes logistics uh, knowing who all the vendors are and knowing what 17025 is it's oh yeah good there's, point there's a yeah. lot there's a lot to yeah it. sometimes even that the organizational knowledge is valuable yeah mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to remember that because i me myself i get so focused on the job you know that i forget about those i think we were also talking about quality you know finding yeah. the right people for the quality positions. yeah mm -hmm. i mean we're definitely seeing a shortage of quality people out there and that's another thing that a lot of you know i i spent probably 15 years at esco in, in sales and when we go out into the sales world, into different organizations, they, they like calibration might be part of their job, mm -hmm. you know, especially in quality. Um, they might not fully understand what calibration is. Just kind of jammed into it. Yeah. It's just another, you know, thing that they have to make sure the company abides by, so to speak. Um, so it, what what you'll find in, when you're in sort of our environment is a lot of the people that you're you're dealing with, I'd say maybe 80 percent don't really have a firm grasp of what you're talking about. Um, they're very focused, like, say, if we went out to a biotech company, I mean, there might be a couple of guys at that company that that have metrology experience. 
but that's it. Um, and it might be a 10,000 person company or, you know, maybe not that big, but let's say it's uh, a thousand person company. They might have one metrologist or, you know, a couple of metrology people and nobody else really knows anything about it. So, um, you know, you're dealing with purchasing people, you're dealing with operations people, you're dealing with coordinators, you're dealing with, you know, shipping and receiving people um, that have never really got any training in what they're dealing with. So there's, there's quite a, you know, so when we communicate to them, I think everyone at the company knows that there's only a few people that really have a, a deep depth of knowledge about what we're, what we're really doing as a, you know, in terms of the actual calibration part of the service. You know, that's in that uh, NCSLI educators group. I think that's one of the areas that NCSLI could really, like if we could somehow get a push to have even one part of an engineering degree talk about metrology nationwide, you know, mm -hmm. where the, everyone just understands in general what it is and how it applies. I think that's yeah. so helpful. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. I, I remember I was at one of the local trade shows here. It was a kind of a medical device trade mm -hmm. show. And this this guy, he used to come by every year. He was a, a professor from Tufts University and electrical engineering professor. And uh, he every time he'd come by, he'd say, oh, yeah. He's like, ESCO calibration. He'd go, and he'd always say, I, I know what calibration is. And, and, and I'd always ask him, you know, like, did he ever teach any calibration to his engineering students? He's like, nah. He's like, none of the engineers really know anything about calibration. At all. Because most engineering programs really don't teach any of it. No. They don't, you know, teach the basics of metrology. And so most, your average engineer, in the manufacturing environment, when they get in there, they don't really have a background in, in measurement or or techn or metrology. Yeah, they could tell you all day how to use a, a thermocouple, how to put it into a circuit, and uh, yeah, how to yeah, use it. Yeah. But then to to actually test it and traceably check. Yeah, it, yeah, know, they, that's a they, they story. don't they don't know anything about traceability. Well, it's funny too because they'll they'll almost do a calibration in validation, but they don't equate. You know, it, there's a disconnect there sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Or they need help with that validation. Mm -hmm. So we're getting actually close to the end of our hour. Something I like to do at the end of the, the podcast is talk about, you know, is there any any memorable calibrations that's come through the doors here or any weird ones? Like I always talk about, I calibrated at a morgue before. Mm. You know, is there... Yeah. Oh, okay, you got one in mind? So Yeah, that was, a, that was a while ago, but when I was doing sales... Um, I picked up the phone one day from the U.S. bobsled team, and they wanted us to calibrate their thermometers that they use, and they checked the ice to know like what blades to use based on how really? how cold the ice was. I'm like, well, I just thought ice was ice. I mean, yeah, I didn't realize there's different perimeters of the quality of the ice and the, the the way it froze and certain things. So they had this thermometer kit that they would send in. And I had to talk Mike into uh, let me let Nesco do it for free so we can get the recognition of <laughs> doing work for the U.S. bobsled team. Yeah. We calibrated a couple of the thermometers every year for them for about five years. And then maybe they discovered they didn't need to calibrate them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> really cool. That was kind of neat. Yeah. 
So what? Uh, yeah, because maybe the colder it is, maybe there's a hardness. I, I'm curious if there's a paper out there on hardness of ice compared. It's got to be something that they were onto because they definitely would check the ice with a, a probe, and um, they had a couple different types of probes. One was like a surface probe, and one was like a. Um, it was like a specially designed probe that was the same size of the track. Like a rut, the rut in the track? Yeah, it would fit right into the rut. Wow. Yeah, so we had to configure a way to get that into our wells. Yeah, so it was, it was cool. That's a cool one. Yeah. I love it. Where was that out of? They're here local? Do they train here locally? They were, that group was out of New York. Okay. I think they were up at uh, Lake Placid. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So I that see. That's neat. why I always ask because there's been so many different interesting calibrations mm. I've never even mm. heard of. So. There's been a lot of weird ones, um, big companies, small companies. Mm. Oh yeah, there's, there's like, so many different ones. It's, I mean, it's, so, some of the the um, newer guys over the years would always be impressed with. They'd look at the work order and say, "Wow, is this like the real FBI that's sending something in?" And I'm like, "Let me look." Yeah, it is. Yeah, I didn't even realize that. You know, nice. or or other government yeah, agencies. Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, you know, one of the earlier ones I remember was uh, we used to get this like all of the test and measurement stuff from the Alvin, which is uh, a submersible down at Woods Hole. Oh, okay. Yeah, and if you ever look that thing up, it's it's like. It was one of the first uh, deep diving submersibles that they use, and mm. it can go down like ten thousand feet or something crazy. Yeah, like that. I think there's a show. There's a show with that yeah. Alvin on it. Yeah, it's called the Alvin. And then um, there's been like a lot of different. I remember during Desert Storm, um, we uh, they they were putting. Um, the Patriot missile systems or something like that into, into Israel actually. Cause, cause what was happening was where they were sending missiles into Israel. And so the U S was trying to get, uh, those, um, systems to, to, uh, intercept those, those missiles down into Israel. Hmm. And, um, they called us up, the, the contractor called us up. They said, Hey, we've got these test sets. We, we need to get calibrated, you know, immediately. So I just remember that, you know, they sent all these test sets in and, you know, it's a good thing they did because uh, we found a lot of equipment out of spec in oh, those wow. test sets because Ooh. it just wasn't manufactured correctly. So they were able to, instead of sending them all the way to Israel, finding out they were not in specification there, oh, wow. you know, we were able to kind of troubleshoot it here. And then before they even went out, you know, we, we, you know, made sure that all the test sets that were sent over were in specification. So, um, See, but, it seems, yeah. uh, seems quite natural for something for the Patriot missile to be calibrated. Yeah. I, I, I don't remember if it was actually the Patriot <laughs> missile, but it was some type of missile defense. System, I'm going know. with Patriot missile. Yeah. yeah I mean, it was cool. For Massachusetts. Was, yeah. I don't know. I'd have to look in the history. <laughs> we can books. talk all about yeah. it now that that 10 year yeah, NDA yeah, yeah. is up. And <laughs> it's, it's a free for all. I, I'd have to look at the history book on that. Yeah, oh, that was interesting. Did were you there for that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, once again, I appreciate you all having me out here. I, I do want to promote that uh, this is a great training location, and we hope to be back uh, a, a little bit in 2023, maybe mm -hmm. once or twice throughout the year, maybe up to four times, depends on how the we we kind of have to figure out the timing and the pacing of the training. But definitely a beautiful facility. Do you want to talk about the addition real quick, uh, right towards the end? Yeah, I mean, well, a couple of things. First off, we, we've really enjoyed having you out. 
Uh, we've got a lot of good feedback from everybody that attended the, the courses. Awesome. Um, and, you know, I did, uh, and I don't know if your viewers want to hear this, but I did offer to to interview you, even though you're you're a great <laughs> interviewer, to find out more about your what your background is. And so maybe the next time you come yeah. out, um, we can do that. Do a reverse but, interview. Yeah, but I want to hear some, you know, people really want to hear that out there. So Awesome. Um, but yeah, we we uh, we just uh, added on uh, close to an eight thousand square foot um, space uh, adjacent to our existing space, and and we're going to use it for a lot of training mm -hmm. in the future. Even before I contacted you guys, that was something you guys were yeah. throwing around. Yeah, we'd like to area. you know host some industry events mm -hmm. here, um, maybe like a mini trade show or. Um, I don't know, Troy. You have any ideas? Yeah, on that? We, we've kicked around a few ideas. I think uh, in the in the past we would have some uh, customer things like open house types of events. Yeah, that worked out really well. Um, we were affiliated with ASQ in the past, so we think we had like a barbecue once, so that we wouldn't mind doing something like that again. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to look into the option of um, being um, the New England rep for ncsl oh, which right. I, I i'm not sure what that what that's it's kind of been stagnant over the last couple of years gotcha. so we're going to see if that's still around and uh now that we have the space for it we can easily accommodate um the, those regional meetings so and even if the um even if someone else is running it we can easily be the host site as well yeah so yeah beautiful site it's a good spot and and yeah, training has been really important for us over the last couple of years. So we, we have to take it up a couple notches. You definitely yeah. did with that yeah. space. It's a really nice space. Yeah. If you're doing a barbecue again and I'm out here, I, I, I smoke stuff. I'm a, I do oh, yeah? a lot of good barbecue smoking. Well, not that smoke stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, do some uh, good uh, barbecue for you guys. Do you guys have uh, barbecue places out here? There's a few. There's, we're not really known for our barbecue. Yeah, yeah I, w I wouldn't like make a point to go to a barbecue place while you're out here. You might want to try the seafood. Sure. If you like seafood. Yeah, my, my wife loves clam chowder, and oh, yeah? we forgot to get her some while she was out here. So Ooh, we were upset about that. Yeah. yeah. There's some really, really good places. So, I like, the, I like clam chowder if it's really good. I just don't like, like cheap clam chowder no, that's a big difference you're right yep. yeah 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 it's a big difference i'm really picky with my clam chowder just because yeah. i've been having it my whole yeah. life i think it's got to be good people from new england are, are, are seafood snobs yep of course oh, yeah absolutely. we were always like oh that was okay you know but yeah, we're, yeah. Anytime I would eat like lobster, because I, I, I like, I will say I like shellfish way more than fish, you yeah. know, mm -hmm. but when I would have lobster, uh, like when I was on recruiting in Wyoming, it was like, this isn't lobster. <laughs> what is this? You know what, what is I mean? this mystery thing? Yeah, it was so weird how different it is. Maybe it was West Coast lobster, or let's hope it's or, or like some Mexico. Coast. Yeah, some Mexican well, they stuff. have that Caribbean style yeah, lobster, yeah. Oh, um, oh. the spiny lobsters, which. It's still a lobster, but it's no nothing like a Maine lobster. At my at my hotel, I saw um, advertisement for crawfish. Is there a lot of crawfish out here? No, I think those are imported from. That's yeah. so weird. Why from, would the hotel advertise that? Yeah, they get them from New Orleans. Yeah, or yeah. but oh, I, don't, I would eat that. It's so good down there. Yeah, they're, they're not native to this area. I mean, all. you know, like one other thing is like, if anybody out there in the calibration world wants to come by. You know, we, we do have an open door pol policy. Um, 
and uh, we've, you know, we're, we're happy to take people around the lab, show them what we, what we've done here. Um, and, uh, and also, you know, we've done a lot of different partnerships with, with, you know, different companies over the years, providing either, you know, a calibration service to them that might be specialized or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and this would be, you know, people over in Europe. I know a lot of people in, in Europe follow, you know, ESCO a little bit. So hopefully if you're, you know, from the Netherlands or we have worldwide listeners yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I know you, you're pretty active internationally. So, I am, yeah. You know. But, uh, you know, Boston's a pretty, pretty great place to visit. So if you're ever here, especially right now, yeah, mm -hmm. come over in the fall. It's really easy to get in and out of this area. There's, there's like five different airports. Manchester's great. That's my favorite. It's just so easy to go in and out of. Mm -hmm. Just be careful going through JFK. Yeah, don't go through JFK. <laughs> don't go through JFK. <laughs> That's a story for a different time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I got stuck there. But yeah, I agree. It, it's beautiful out here. But I, this is my kind of climate, my kind of place. So, you know, mm -hmm. anywhere that there's seasons in the fall and all that. But you, you, you get crazy snow here, though, as well, right? I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that. Maybe just occasionally? My, my plow guy came once last year. In the year before that, he came once. So it's more so. like a recent history, maybe polluting some of our minds with like record-breaking stuff that had happened. Yeah, there was a couple of years back where we had like five storms in the month of February. Yeah. It was all over the news. Right. But otherwise, um, I don't think we get a lot of snow. I mean, it's... Well, most of the time I go out there with a leaf blower and just blow it off the driveway. Yeah, oh, okay. I mean, it can be, it can vary. We can have cold snaps. We can have warm snaps. Do the hurricanes um, hit up here? Um, yeah, we'll get a hurricane, you know, once every 10 years, maybe. Yeah, it's hmm. a dial down one, though. It's, but, yeah, it's already, you, you might be, it's been traveling the yeah, coast. By it might be up. like a class one. Um, and we, we do get a lot of northeasters, which right. those are probably our biggest storms up right, here. And those, those can be pretty pretty uh they can take out a lot of trees you can lose a lot of power you can mm. you know we get an ice storm here or there which is pretty you know because well, you have the dense trees that collect the yeah snow. yeah mm -hmm. you get it yeah sometimes you get a late spring storm mm. which will you know the leaves are already out and, and take down a lot of trees so you know we yeah. have our fair share of weather problems here there's no question about mm -hmm. that but it's a fairly moderate climate because we're right along the ocean. Sure. So um, it, the ocean water is relatively warm here, you know. And a lot of history. And a lot of history. Yeah. yeah. Even the dead of winter, it doesn't get that cold here, in my opinion. Um, it's it's rare to go below zero F. Nice. So, which is, so we got that going for us. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I once I lived in the Midwest is when I started to realize what real cold is. Right. I'm a weather guy. I'm always watching different cities, and I'll notice like the Midwest, Wisconsin, Minnesota. <laughs> they they can be below freezing, like 32 freezing, and oh, yeah. they can be below 32 for 20 days straight. Oh yeah, like no problem. It's it's like big news if we go more than two days here. So, oh wow. So it's it's not yeah. a we fluctuate a lot. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's it's not bad. And if you get into a, a winter sport, it makes it a little better, like skiing or snowboarding yeah. or winter hiking. You can actually go surfing all winter, too. Oh, there's surfing out here. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, oh, wow. If you, pretty, pretty we're, we're in um, Chelmsford. Is, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, it's okay. It's like, we're about 45 minutes um, from Boston. You're about 45 minutes from the coast. 
Um, you're maybe about two hours to the bigger mountains around here, which as Troy said, would have, how many like peaks are around here? Actually, I'll be doing that tomorrow. I'm going to try to tackle another 4,000 foot hike oh, from, wow. from my checklist. Um, but there are, there are 48, 4,000 foot peaks in, uh, New England. 48. Yep. Wow. No, no one knows that. That are over four thousand feet, and that's not the Appalachians. It's the what? Which ones are uh, White Mountains? Yeah, there's white the white, there's right the white green, um, and the Berkshires. But you know, they're they're sort of along that Appalachian Trail, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you know. So mm -hmm. Appalachian Trail goes right through the middle of the White Mountains and ends in Maine. Oh, it does. Okay. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. And we, we our largest mountain is Mount Washington, which is about six thousand two hundred and sixty-two feet, roughly. Okay. Um, but. The mount, when you go up there, the mountains look big because there's like when you're out west, you're already at 4,000 feet mm -hmm. and you're looking at from 4,000 to 8,000. Mm -hmm. But here, you're not at the bottom of the mountain, you're only at like 800 feet. So it's all mountain. Right. So it look, they look just, they look big. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but people don't realize that there's quite a few mountains in good hiking and peaks high peaks out here so interesting okay mm -hmm. yeah yeah i'm definitely going to check things out more as i come out here more often yeah there's a lot of good things to do and you just missed apple picking season oh darn yeah <laughs> apple picking season's big yeah well and we missed halloween at salem yeah. right oh, yeah <laughs> that would have been, been that's a, that's an event so well again thank you for having me out and then I, like i said i'm hoping this would be a regular thing maybe a couple times a year if not up to quarterly i think that would probably work out yeah. um, but definitely what's the best way to reach out if they if someone wants to touch base with with uh well, with esco people can go out and check out our new revised website um, we we just rebuilt it back in june and that's escolab.com e-s-s-c-o-l-a-b.com and uh, all of our contact information is right on the website. Perfect. Yep. All right. Well, thank you once again. And we will talk to you guys in the near future. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan.